So if you want to, go ahead and open your Bibles there to the letter of James. James is that small five-chapter book in the back of your Bibles. And a neat thing about James is that it is a, a book that you can probably read in its entirety in a matter of 15 to 20 minutes, or if you read like me, 45 minutes. Um, but since we are doing a, an eight-week survey over the book, um, I think the, the size, the small size of James will work out perfectly because basically the way I have it outlined is we should be able to hit every verse, at least cover every verse and, and, and consider every verse in eight weeks. And so... We will spend more time on the more significant passages of James, you know, because there are some very significant passages to touch on in the book. Um, but but I think it'll work out good as long as we stay disciplined every week and and um, and keep on track. Um, I think the book of James, I, I have it summed up like this: the book of James is a book that explains the life of a genuine Christian. If I could put it in one sentence, it would be the life of a genuine Christian. Right, so this book, I think, is, is very practical in its teaching. And I think also the book of James, because I think it's perfect for, for our church, a church that, that holds theology and doctrine, a very high view of preaching and theology, I think the book of James is very good because I think James is being, being very intentional at trying to step on the toes of those who maybe have Christianity purely in their mouths and in their heads and not in their hands and their feet, right? So James is, James is speaking to those who maybe profess faith but don't work out their faith. And so for, for a lot of churches like ours, I think that we can get very heady in our theology and doctrine and get away from, from living out the Christian life. And so I think this book will be good for us. Um, I wanted to kind of open it up just to get everybody's heads kind of moving towards the book of James, open it up like this. When we say the book of James, what comes to mind to you guys? Are there any passages in James or anything from James that I guess in your past you've really come to love or to know or appreciate or, or lean on? Because it is a very practical book, so I just wanted to kind of get you guys thinking about even y'all's own interaction with the book. Because at the end of the day, when we finish this book, I want y'all to have seen enough and understand enough where James is a book that you can turn to. And James is a book that you can go to. And you'll know where passages are in the book of James, and you'll be able to go to them in, in times of need. So I just open it up. Does anybody, what is James, what have you guys done? I know, Trish, you memorized James, I know. So that's, that's pretty big. Right. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm always fascinated by uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, but brethren, knowing at that that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. Mm-hmm. Once I got into the ministry, that strikes terror into my heart. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's good. Speaks right to you, right? Yeah. yeah. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Um, I like in the uh, first chapter of James, uh, some people will try and pit, I think, what they would say relationship versus religion. I'll say Christianity is not about religion, but rather relationship. Then the first chapter of James, we're actually told what true religion looks like. Mm-hmm. And so I think people, unfortunately, fault when they say, you know, it's not religion or Christianity is not a religion. But rather in James, it tells us religion that is 
he that is pure and undefiled before God, and then gives us the definition of what true religion is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, that's part of his working out of a true religion, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's good. I mean, I think for me myself, I mean, I think as much as evangelism as we've done, James chapter two is is a huge part of this book for me that I've had to interact with just being that the majority of, of false gospel presentations and false churches that that say that they use the Bible generally go to James chapter 2 which I know that they have a false understanding of James chapter 2 and, and James's discussion of faith and works and um, what James means by justification um, James chapter 2 for me has been something I've really had to be able to handle and grasp and and be able to um, explain how that doesn't contradict the teachings of Paul on justification. You know, so that we're, we're actually probably going to spend a whole Sunday school once we get to that passage, James chapter 2, verse 14 and following, because it's so, it's so significant. So many people, whether you're talking to Roman Catholicism or Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormonism, they all um, know James chapter 2, or at least a couple of verses from it. Right, they all know at least a couple of verses. I don't think they know what it means, but they know the verses and they'll quote them. Um, so, so maybe this is a good place to transition because I think James chapter two historically has led to a debate whether the book of James should even be in our Bibles or not. Right, it's it's led to the uh, the question of canon, canonicity. Is is this book is he contradicting the Apostle Paul? Should, should James be in our Bibles? Um, and probably a lot of you are familiar with what Martin Luther even said as late as the Protestant Reformation, right? He's quoted as saying that the, that the epistle of James is a, is a right strawy epistle, meaning he didn't, he had very serious questions about the authority of James because of its teachings. And most of it came from James chapter 2 and what he thought James was saying and trying to teach. Um, so that was as late as the Reformation. We had people like uh, Martin Luther, who we all respect um, the things that he did to fight for justification. I think a lot of the times, like probably because Martin Luther's mind was so was so enthralled in the idea of justification by faith alone that it, he was almost set up for failure when approaching this book. You know, I think he had a presupposition that. Anytime we're dealing with justification, it must be free grace. And if somebody uses that language in another way, you know, it probably, it probably um, made him take a couple steps back. Um, but what I also did was I brought, just to show you a comparison, I brought John Calvin's commentary, right? Another reformer during the same time of uh, Martin Luther, just to show you a contrast. Because we had, like Martin Luther, who we all respect, um, questioning the authority of James but I wanted to show you what John Calvin says, and this is just in his uh, commentary, his, his, his um, introduction to the commentary. This is what he says. He says, There are also at this day some who do not think it entitled to authority, speaking of the book of James, some do not think it's entitled to authority. I, however, am inclined to receive it without controversy, because I see no cause for rejecting it. For what seems in the second chapter to be inconsistent with the doctrine of free justification we shall easily explain in its own place. So John Calvin's fully aware that some people have questioned um, the authority of the book of James. 
But he says when we get to, when he gets to James chapter two in his commentary, he's going to easily explain what what James was trying to teach. And so I think that's just helpful to see that the church was aware that there was those who questioned it, but for for a uh, for a, a man under the authority of God's word, John Calvin fully was able to explain it and, and wasn't wasn't afraid of its teaching. Um, and so for ourselves, that was John Calvin's view and Martin Luther's view of canonicity. For us, I think the issue of should James be in our Bible, I think this issue can be resolved um, by just taking a very close look at, at the book and what it says. And there's three things we're going to look at today um, to assure our minds of this book of James and, and whether it should be in our Bibles. Because I want that to be um, not an issue in anyone's mind, right? Because a lot of the times we hear Martin Luther had a questionable view of it that could, you know, cast doubt in your minds. But there's three things we're going to look at in this book. It's dating, it's author, and it's content. And with these things, um, we're going to see that um, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit present in, in its teaching. We're going to see that, the, that, this, that this book is, is in fact God-breathed, um, especially by its content. But first we'll look at the date. We're going to look at the date that this book was written. And most commentator, commentators date it to the mid to late 40s. Mid to late 40s, which is very, very early. And I'm going to read through... Um, five reasons for this early date. And I got these from, from Craig Blomberg's commentary on James, who, who did the best at summarizing and just putting them very succinctly in, in a couple sentences here. So first reason. First reason for the very early date. Number one, this author would, be read, would have to be readily known to the people he was writing to because he didn't feel the need to add any additional information about who he was. Right. If you look at James chapter one, verse one, when, mo- when most when most authors of the books um, give an explanation of who they are, or at least say that they're apostle, look what James says that he's James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's all the explanation we get. So we can take from this that the people he would have been very early where the people would have known him and would have known. Um, who it was that was writing this book to them. The second thing, James's loose sightings of Jesus' teachings with no reference to the gospel writers themselves would indicate that the gospels had not yet been penned. Right? So as we go through the book, we're going to see examples of like, in James 3.12, he says, Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Right? That, that, that rings of what Jesus said right? in his teachings. James 5.12, he says, Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Again, we hear um, very similar um, references to Jesus' teaching and preaching, but they're not exact quotes from the Gospels. And they're not, um, he, never, he never quotes well, like Luke says or like Mark said, right? So, so it leads us to believe that James is writing before the Gospels himself had even been penned. The third thing for the early date, there's no mentions of Gentiles. There's no mention of any issues pertaining to Gentile conversions. So the letter seems to be mostly Jewish, which would, of course, be very early in the church before a lot of Gentiles were converted. Number four, 
There's no mention of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And number five, the book must have been written prior to James' martyrdom in 62 AD. So I kind of gave away already, unfortunately, who I think the author is, but um, he would have had to write before he died in 62 AD, which we know from Josephus is, is the year that that happened. And so very, very early was this book written. Most think it was actually the earliest book. The earliest book written is the book of James. And so as one commentator described it, he said, this is the roots of Christianity. This is the roots of Christianity. And as I said before, I think that that's good. You know, we sum it up like this is the life of a genuine believer, the book of James. So let's dive into the letter a little more specifically. James chapter one, verse one. It says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes who dispersed abroad. Greetings. So. Hopefully, maybe not all you guys know which James it is that died in 62 AD, because I do want to look at real quickly who this author is. Which James is it from the New Testament that is writing? Because there's, there's five James mentioned in the New Testament. And maybe just a show of hands, who thinks they know which James from the New Testament without saying who it is? That's cheating. You guys know? You know, maybe? Maybe? Okay, well, let's look at it, because I don't think that it, inf- it affects our interpretation of any of the passages with, if, if we're not sure about who it is, but I think that it is so interesting to find out which James it is from the New Testament that it just adds an entirely different new dimension to the book as we read it, to find out which James it was from the New Testament that wrote these things. And so we can determine this James from internal clues inside the text, and external clues from church history. But let's first look at the internal clues. I kind of mentioned it before, but the fact that James only states his first name and doesn't state anything else about himself is going to be very significant in finding out who this James is. Because like I said, there's, there's five James in the New Testament, right? So I don't think that any one of them could have been the writer. It's possible, but... Without James giving any further distinction, the people would have had to know who it was that was writing. So when he just said James, he had to be such a prominent person, such a, such a, such a big name, and such an authority in the early church that everyone would have known. Well, of course we know which James this is that's writing to us. And so let's look at the different James in the New Testament. Um, first of all, and I think who would be a very good candidate to write this book is James the brother of John. He was called the son of Zebedee. And he was one of the sons of thunder. Right? James the brother of John. Because he was indeed a very prominent apostle in the first century. And would therefore be a very likely candidate to have written this book. Because we all know that the James the son of John from the Gospels. And how much, how much influence he had. And how, and how much he's mentioned and interacts with Jesus. Um... But unfortunately, this James was the very first apostle to be martyred very early. In his martyrs described in Acts chapter two, uh, 12, verse 2, he was martyred by Herod in A.D. 44, which is very early. So that James is eliminated. Um, also, another good thing to point out 
is when you look at the, like I said, he just says James, a bondservant of God. If you flip through like I did and look at every other book in the New Testament, all the books written by apostles, generally I'd say, except for Hebrews, um, which is another debate for another day, but they like Peter, Peter, an apostle, Paul, an apostle, right? But James here doesn't use the title. So that's another reason I would think that maybe James, the apostle, the son of thunder, son of Zebedee, didn't write it. He would have been more inclined to state his, his apostolic authority. So it wasn't James, the brother of John. The second person who's a possibility is James, the son of Alphaeus. Um, he's, a, he's one of the twelve, one of the twelve disciples that um, is listed in Luke chapter 16, for instance. But this James is only mentioned in Scripture when the Scripture is giving a list of the twelve disciples. We never hear of this James um, interacting with Christ himself or having any type of prominent role outside of just being listed as one of the twelve. Um, so he's probably not a likely candidate. The third James from Luke 16, this is, it says about him that this James is the father of the apostle Judas, not Iscariot. So then again, this, this James is just listed and just named to let you know which um, apostle is his son. So he just, his name is just mentioned. Um, so that, that wouldn't be a good choice. Lastly, um, number four, we have James, the son of Mary, the brother of Jesus, from Matthew 13.55. Um, in Matthew 13.55 says, you'll probably be familiar, it says, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, his brothers James, and Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and aren't his sisters as well with him? Right, so this is the James that we're looking at now. James, the son of Mary, the brother of Jesus. Um, this James, interestingly enough, just like the rest of Jesus' brothers, um, went from unbelief in Jesus to belief in Jesus. Because we know from John 7, verse 3, where it, it spoke of, if you can remember John 7, verse 3, without, without us having to go there, this is where the brothers are telling G Jesus to go up to the Feast of Booths in Judea. Go up to the Feast of Booths and reveal yourself. You know, anybody who wants to be known would go be public and, and make yourself known. Right? If y'all remember that part. Um, because then verse 5 goes on to say, they were saying this for not even his brothers were believing in him. Right? So his brothers, were, it was almost a taunt. Like, go reveal yourself. If, if, if you're who, you, who you, are, you say you are, go reveal yourself. Right? And it says that the brothers were not believing in him. And that, and that, that in itself, to me, is, is kind of mind-blowing. Right? How do, you, how do you grow up with somebody who is sinlessly perfect and not recognize the, the significance of that? But that, that just, again, shows you unbelief. That, again, I think would just show you the, the, the truth of depravity, that you could live with the Messiah and not, and not believe. Right? Because they were telling him, go up and you're, tell them who you say you are. So it's not like Jesus was still hiding himself at that point. He was saying who he was. And they still did not believe. So this James went from unbelief to belief. And when did, when did this James become a believer? We think this James became a believer in 1 Corinthians 15.7. Most likely because this is the resurrection. 
This is, this is an, an instance and a reference to the resurrection where it said, 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it said, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the rest of the apostles. Right? So there's a reference to where the risen Christ personally comes and appears to James first, then to the rest of the apostles. Right? So James just has a very interesting life in relationship to Jesus Christ that, that no one else would have. You know, he grew up with him, was his brother, you know, which would be a, a son of Mary and Joseph after Jesus' miraculous birth. So he grows up with Jesus, doesn't believe, sees the resurrected Christ, and now believes. And so you can imagine um, the belief that comes with the resurrection appearance when, when the Spirit is working in that. And we'll see what, in fact, is the result of this type of, of belief. Um, and so this, this James becomes a very prominent leader in the church. Um, he's the James in Acts chapter 15 when Paul and Silas... Um, come to the church in Jerusalem because it is the prominent church and Peter's there and, and James is there and they're discussing issues of doctrine with the, with the Gentiles. The Gentiles need to be um, circumcised, right? He's very prominent is what, I, is what my point is. The church knows him and the church comes to him for um, advice on doctrine. Paul calls him one of the pillars of the church in Galatians 2.8. Galatians 2.8, Paul said, for he who effectually worked for Peter and his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James, and Cephas, and John, who were, who were reputed to be pillars. Right? A pillar. So all of this is necessary to see like this James is a pillar of the church. He's a leader of the church. And he's very prominent, would be very well known. And so this James would be in the perfect position to be writing an epistle to the church where, as it says here, who is he writing to? It says that he's writing to the 12 tribes who were dispersed abroad. That's the audience. That's who this James is writing to. So James would be the perfect, perfect prominent leader to be writing a book that would have authority to all the scattered church. Um, so that's the, that's, the, that's the internal evidence from the text that can help us determine that this James will be the only James left in the New Testament that would be prominent enough for everyone to recognize his authority and who he was. Um, external clues from church history. Um, early witnesses to James, the brother of Jesus being the author, are Eusebius, the church historian, Origen, Jerome, Augustine, and the Council of Carthage. All of these gave James, the brother of Jesus, the um, authorship of this book. And, and I said before, I, I think it's very interesting to look at who the author is, but I don't think it's going to affect any of our interpretation. You know, it's just very, for me, it just helps my mind when I know who's writing as I think about, as I think about this. So, this, this James is who's writing, this James who grew up with Jesus, unbelieving, and in, after seeing the resurrected Christ, if you just flip over a page probably, James 2.1 now look at how James describes Jesus. First, it's a mocking unbelief of James, or, or Jesus, go show yourself. Go show yourself if you're who you say you are. To now, after seeing Christ resurrected, James chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of favoritism. 
So now, Jesus Christ is the glorious Lord to James. And so for me, that's, that was just very significant because I had never thought through the issue myself of which James it was. So, so that was great to, to read through that. Um, one more point on this James before we dive in. This James, as I said, having seen the resurrected Christ, um, was then willing to do what we should all be to do. And that's to be martyred. To be martyred for the faith. And I actually wanted to read, I don't think it'll take but just a second, but as I mentioned, Eusebius, the early church historian, he writes about this martyrdom. And I think we'll all um, um, have a, new, a, a renewed um, appreciation for this James if I just read this section right here. So what happened was um, the Jews who held this James and a very high, had a very high view of James because of his piety, because of his prayer. He was always in the temple praying. Um, they nicknamed him James the Just. He was well known by the Christians and the Jews as James the Just. Very high view of this James. And so as all these people are turning to Christ, um, the Jews looked to James to try to settle them down. And they pleaded to him to avoid um, these Christians. He said, tell the Christians um, that this Christ is not the Messiah, James. We all know you're a just man and you love God and you're not, you're not partial to anyone. Tell the people that this, that this Jesus is not the Messiah for us. And so they told him, go up on top of the temple and proclaim to all the people outside the temple and tell them for us that this Jesus is not the Christ. And we can imagine what this James said about Jesus. It says that he confessed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, our Savior and Lord. Right? And with that, so James is up on the top of the temple and he's crying out that Jesus is in fact the Son of God, our Savior and Lord. And this is what Eusebius records about him. It says, And they cried out, O, O, justice! Justice himself is deceived. And they fulfilled that which is written in Isaiah, Let us take away the just, referring to James the just, Let us take away the just, because he is offensive to us. Wherefore they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Isaiah 3.10 So Eusebius actually um, attributes Isaiah 3.10 to what happens here to James the just. But he says, Going up, therefore, they cast the just man down, saying to one another, Let us stone James the just. And they began to stone him, as he did not die immediately when cast down. But turning around, he knelt down, saying, I entreat thee, O Lord God and Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Um, And one of them, a fooler, which is a, a laundryman, beat out the brains of justice with a club, the club that he used to beat out clothes. And so thus James suffered martyrdom, and they buried him on the spot where his tombstone is still remaining by the temple. He became a faithful witness both to the Jews and to the Greeks that Jesus is the Christ. And so that's, that's what happens when somebody sees the resurrected Lord, is that they're willing to suffer martyrdom, a horrible martyrdom. And so I, I appreciate that about this James, and, and it, for me it really, it really adds a, a perspective as we dive in. So, with no further ado, let's dive in. He says, James chapter 1, verse 1, he says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, this passage, I guess for me, is, as, as, as I look at it, has even become more significant, you know, as, as we deal with people who may deny the lordship of Jesus Christ or even deny his deity more specifically. 
because I don't know how someone could speak in this way unless they had a, an equal view of God and the Lord Jesus Christ on an on a equal plane, right? Because the, the, like the scripture says, we can't serve two masters. So how can you be the slave of God and Jesus Christ? You know, that would be, I would consider idolatry if James didn't have this high view of Jesus Christ to where he is, he is Lord in the way that the Old Testament speaks of Lord as Yahweh, right? So I think it's very fitting that church history named him James the Just because he was in fact a slave of God, a slave that was willing to lay down his life. And of course, we, we should also in the same way be willing to do that. And we should all be slaves of Jesus Christ if we're Christians. I think that's a good definition. And I think James lived that out. And so it says, he's a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is who he's writing to, the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. And so the question is, who are the 12 tribes and why are they scattered? Number one, I think the 12 tribes um, has always been a biblical title for a, a summation of the people of God. The, the people of God who were, especially in the Old Covenant, the people that were in Israel, that there were the Jews, that were God's people that he worked with, would just be a way of describing the people of God in general. So, that, so they would all be the Jews originally. Um, and I think here, I think, as I said earlier, with this early dating, and there not being very many converted Gentiles yet, it, it wouldn't be unnatural for James to still be referring to the people of God in this way, the 12 tribes who were dispersed abroad, because most Christians at this time would have been Jews still. There hadn't been a big sweep of Gentile conversions yet. Um, right? So when James said this, he very well could have been speaking just to Jewish Christians, to very early Jewish Christians. But I don't think we necessarily have to keep this narrow view of thinking of the 12 tribes because... When you look in uh, Matthew 19, Revelation 7, and Revelation 21, in Revelation, especially when you see this view of heaven, when you see this view of heaven and the people there, it's described as the, the 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. But when it does describe these people in heaven, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile at that point. We're all one people of God, and, it's, and, it, and they're spoken of as the 12 tribes. So... I think that even if there was Gentiles present in these churches, which hopefully that there was by then, you know, if any Christians go out, no matter what their, their, their race, there should be conversions of whoever they're with. So I think that would be okay if there was Gentiles there for him to, you know, uh, speak to them as the 12 tribes scattered abroad. So the second question is, why are they scattered abroad? Why, is these, why are these 12 tribes scattered abroad? Because... Wasn't the church always there in Judea and in Jerusalem? And wasn't it always centered there? Why, why all of a sudden are they scattered out like this? Well, it's probably due to what's spoken of in Acts chapter 11. If you remember, here, maybe I'll just read that real quick. Acts chapter 11, verse 19, where it's, the, it's, it's where Stephen gets stoned. Let me read what it says there. It says, yeah. So this is it's speaking of the, the, the stoning of Stephen after that. And it says, uh, so then those who were scattered, right? Those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, they made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews, the Jews alone. 
Well, that's interesting right there. Mm-hmm. So, so like as I was saying, maybe they, maybe they were speaking to Gentiles. That right there says that they weren't yet. So we all remember the stoning of Stephen. It says that the persecution was so great that the Jews were scattered as a result of that, the believing Jews. And so this is probably um, the reason for, for this dispersia. Um, so let's get back into the body now. That's the greetings. That's, the, that's the, the very small limited greeting that James um, gives because I think James is, is very much in the mindset to get to the point. He's, he's, he's wanting to get to some action here. That's James' intent. And um, this book of James, for those of you who have studied it, you'll know that it's very hard to outline. James is in and out, back and forth, and, he, and he's really uh, all over the place. And so every single commentary you'll read, every outline is just, it's, it's completely different. And most people are kind of stretching for an outline, right? So, but I think what we'll see right here in James chapter 1 is this. I think he touches right at the beginning, this is kind of my outline. I think what he does is he touches at, at the very beginning on the three really big things that he wants to speak about, which are trials, godly wisdom, and the issue of riches and, and poverty, Right, so he, 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 the first things he discusses are these things, and then I think he returns to them periodically in all different kinds of order throughout the book. So that's kind of how we're going to address it, which works good for us because say we don't finish whatever section we're in, he, he's so all over the place that we should just be able to pick up you know, the next week without, without missing a beat. But we're going we're gonna to really concentrate on, I think, what his main points are, trials, how to be godly in trials, um, how to have godly wisdom and what godly wisdom is, and the whole issue of riches and, po- and poverty, and not um, not uh, holding people and not looking at people in, in in different ways because of their riches or their, or their poverty. And so, let's dive in here to the first of many commands in the book of James, the first of many imperatives, verse one or chapter one, verse two. He says, to consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And I just thought, wow, what a way to start off the book. Mm-hmm. A command to be joyful in trials. Mm-hmm. And so as that was the first thing that I really had to deal with as far as interpretation, I just thought to myself, man, I hope this gets easier. Right? Because having joy in trials is difficult. And that may be a good reason he, why he mentions it first and addresses it first. Um, and so if James is in fact writing to the Jewish Christians who are scattered because of persecution, we can imagine, and I think it's helpful to imagine, all of the different trials that would come along with that. Um, because it, the text says, where it says, when you encounter various trials, and it, it, everybody notes that the word various there literally means multicolored trials. So he's speaking of just a wide array, a wide array of trials that these that these Christians are going to encounter. Um, and so in my mind, I just took myself to a, what if I was one of these? What if we were scattered abroad? What if the persecution came here and we were scattered abroad and we just went outside of what we know is our life and went to a different province? You can imagine all the trials that would come with that, right? We'd probably not have the nice jobs that we have. You know, we'd end up doing who knows what. Working in the fields is what it seems like a lot of these people ended up having to do. Um, so I, I really try to put my mind where these, where these guys would be, um, and I think it's helpful to do that. Um, the next thing to notice in the text is that it says, 
when you encounter trials, not if you encounter trials. So we're, we're to consider it joy when we encounter trials, not if. And so the assurity that James has that these people are going to fall into trials is, is the same assurity that we have is that we're living in a fallen, sinful world. And so the trials are going to come. You can count on it. Um, it's a sure thing. And a, another interesting thing to note, it, it, right here, the next word, when you encounter, right? When you encounter this, the word literally means when you fall into. So he's speaking of a trial that comes that you fall into, that you're not prepared for, mm-hmm. right? And so I think what, what our job is to do when, when considering this text is what we're doing here is we're, we're to be ready. We're to be getting ready with this text for the trials that are going to come, that are going to, support, that are going to surprise us, right? That's how, that's, our job is to get ready um, because the trials, we will fall into them. Um, and, and we all know the natural reaction to trials, depression, anxiety, questioning of God's providence. But the Christian attitude is to be that of joy, joy in trials, and so I'll just ask a question, a rhetorical question. How many of us have had success with this very first imperative of the book of James? Right? Because there's 53 more imperatives to come in the book. How are we doing with the first one? Right? That, I mean, that's another interesting thing to note about the book is that um, for the five chapters that it takes up, it has the most imperatives. Right? Douglas Moo said... It's not a book of information. It's a book of instruction, Amen. right? That's, that's the intent of the book. So um, not to take away from, from what, what I was talking about, but so as we look at this text right here, the point is to be ready because you will fall into them. Everything can be going great. Work can be going great. Family can be going great. You know, next thing you know, your wife's down for two months. You know, you fall into them. What's that right? Are these trials based on the beatings of God or based on your sins that you're having to deal with now? Well, it, it might be a little of both in this text because I think some of these are just from providence, right? They got scattered, right? So now they're working in the fields, being mistreated by you know the landowners that he speaks of. So that would just be providence. Later, when he gets into temptations and trials, it's going to be the temptation and trials of... Um, telling the rich man to come sit up front, you know, he's going to be dealing with those types of, of trials and temptations. So it's both. It's both. Um, so I think we can all see just from, just from experience, right, to have joy in trials is tough. Apart from the grace of God, it's, I'd say it's impossible. Um, and, so, and so the beautiful thing is that here... Um, He's going to give us a motivation to have this joy. He's not just going to tell you to have joy. He's going to give you a motivation for it. And so let's read the next, the next two verses here. Chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. It says, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so, this is why we should, we should be willing and motivated to have joy in our trials is that it's going to make us perfect and complete. Something that we should be looking for, which I would even go on to say here in a minute is the reason we've been saved is to become like Christ.
But just to summarize this teaching, if, if you need even something easier to keep in your mind while you're suffering through trials, is I summarize it like this. Pressure creates diamonds, right? So that's the idea is that these trials are coming um, to conform us, to do a work in us. They're coming to test our faith, which will, which will in turn produce endurance, which will in turn make us perfect to complete, right? So it's just the grace of God, I think, that he gives us insights into um, the motivations for us to persevere in some of these things, right? Because he could, just because of his lordship, just tell us, hey, just do it. Just have joy and we should do it. But it's a grace um, of knowing the reasons why God gives us suffering. And, and doesn't that help, right? Because earlier I said, usually when trials come, don't we question a lot of the time? It's very easy to question. So that's why I think it's very important to understand texts like these is so that our mind doesn't doubt, doesn't question. We know the reason God's doing this, right? Isn't it Peter that says, like, um, these things shouldn't be strange, right? Is there some strange things happening to you? Um, it shouldn't be strange that God's using trials to conform us. Um, I kind of mentioned it, but does anybody know, who knows Romans 8.28 by memory? Does anybody know it? <laughs> Y'all know it though, right? Y'all know it. Um, God works out all things for the good, right? Of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose, right? But I think the next verse explains, it gives us the same telos or goal as James, right? Because Romans 8.29 says, For though he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Right? So all these things working out for good, the good is that you're being conformed to the image of Christ. And I think that's the same thing James is saying. You know, all these trials are coming, so you'll have endurance, so that endurance will have its perfect result, that you'll be perfect and complete, not lacking anything. Um, and so I think it's good to point out that um, we are normally concerned with what? With the, with the trial. We're, we're normally concerned, and our minds are completely engulfed and wrapped up in the trial and how hard it's going to be. Whereas God is more concerned with the end, right? So we need to have the end and we need to have our eye on the prize, in other words, um, and have the mind of God so that we're not thrown off, so that we are ready and that we see the purpose um, of these trials. And, and, and I just thought it is necessary to, to throw in that there's nothing wrong with avoiding trials, but when the Lord and His providence does bring them and it's unavoidable, we need to have the mind of God in these, or in specifically the mind of Christ. And just because of time, I'm going to end on this. This is what, this is what Christ said, Luke twenty two forty two. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. Right? So we'll have the approach of Christ and the mindset of Christ when the trials come. And that, that's all we can do for today. We'll get to worship in time. Um, and let me pray before we go. Well, Father, we, um, God, I just thank you for the book of James and, and for the grace of, of looking into why you bring trials and why you allow them. And, and Father, I pray that this text would, in fact, come to mind when the trials come, that we would um, stand firm and, and, and be patient and enduring and be faithful and that they would have their, their perfect work in conforming us to Christ. 
Father, as many trials have already come in our church recently and, and for sure more to come, God, we pray that, that we would be faithful, that you would conform us in, in whatever way is your will to, to be like Christ, so that you would receive glory. In Jesus' name, amen.